Hello, everyone, and welcome to this Peak Prosperity Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Martinson. I am so excited to continue this conversation again with someone who I learn from every time I listen to one of his podcasts, every time he frames something, I learn something more, and the framing is really important. This is a man I admire, both for his intellect, but more importantly, or as importantly, for his courage, his integrity. I'm really pleased to welcome Brett Weinstein back to the program. Brett, good to have you here. Thanks. I am thrilled to be here. I feel, uh, as as you know, and as uh, people who watched the last Dark Horse, um, where you and I discussed many things, will know. I feel very similarly about you, and uh, you know, I don't know that we're going to make it or we're not, but I'm I'm glad to be fighting shoulder to shoulder with you. Oh, likewise, absolutely. I, I listen. If if you weren't out there, the world would be a darker place um, for me because. This most recent episode, we're here, we're recording this in November of 23, and we've just had the whole uh, Hamas-Israeli situation erupt, and this has caused uh, a lot of consternation, and, and it's very upsetting, and there's really despicable things happening, and uh, there's a lot of emotions up around it. And so what I want to talk with you today, maybe start here, is how, in some ways, this is starting to really unnerve me because... Um, the the COVID warriors, you know, we were winning, right? You, you made this point on a podcast, um, I believe, with a, a NASA guy. I forget his name now, right? Brian Levitt. Yes, that's right. And I first heard you say, you know, it was a great point. You said, you know, we were winning. We're, we're, we're like, we, we got the lockdown thing right. We got the masks. You know, they're in retreat on a lot of that stuff. Um, you know, we we're making real headway on the vaccine issue. And we, we did all of that. Uh, but then... Uh, we got fractured, right? And the original fracturing was it was there was a little bit around 9-11 and just some conversation around that. And then that was immediately preceded by what just happened in Israel. And, and so I want to talk about that that fracturing because there's a way we can look at this without getting involved in the complexities of either of those two topics. I want to talk about it from the standpoint of, man, Brett, if they are good at anything, they are fantastic at dividing us. Is that a fair way to look at this? Yeah, I've called it the coalition slicer dicer, where mm. uh, each new uh, current thing causes the group of people that was beginning to coalesce and learn how to fight effectively together suddenly can't understand each other. And the problem, of course, is that when you see this pattern, it feels like an intentional targeting, but what that implies about historical events is that they're a good bit less organic than they seem, which will, of course, in many people's eyes, make you a, a, a wild-eyed conspiracy theorist to even entertain that possibility. But nonetheless, the pattern is what it is. We We figure out how to win, and then we upend ourselves in reacting reflexively to whatever the next crisis is. And if there's if I could push a button and teach the skeptics one thing, it would be to stop doing that. Hmm. So but that feels to be it's not organic, as you say, um, it feels controlled, it feels contrived. I mean, is that ascribing too much power to them? Well, you know, I've noticed something about uh the perils of speaking in public as as this pattern unfolds, whatever its cause is, which is that there is 
an insatiable desire to push you into one of two known positions on every issue. And so if I say something on Twitter, which is where I do some exploring, I mean, really, I'm, I was a strange professor. I was not standard when I was a professor, and I'm still doing the same thing, which worked really well in the classroom and frankly works pretty well on podcasts and Twitter. But in the midst of a crisis, if I make an observation about something, something I don't hear being talked about elsewhere, and I just want to put that observation in people's minds because I want them to wake up and see that there are things, important things, sometimes obvious things that they are looking right past. What happens next is people will look at that thing and they will say, hmm, that seems to lean slightly in one direction. Therefore, what he's really saying is that he is embracing that position and I'm now going to go after him with the arguments that I know are responsive to that position. Where what I'm really trying to do, I mean, it's like bowling. I'm trying to stay out of two gutters. And the point is, if I, you know, point something out that is a little closer to one gutter than the other, then the point is, oh, you're in that gutter immediately. And it's like, look, you're never going to think your way out of any of these crises if that's the way you play it. You're dealing with complex systems. These things aren't binary and you can't tell who's making sense by what flag they're waving. It just doesn't work like that. Well, isn't this what we all went through with, um, I mean, I'm old enough. I went through this with with uh, George W. Bush, right? And and so they said, you know, axis of evil, you're either with the terrorists or you're, you know, with us. And, and they just created this left-right dynamic, you know, you're either on this side or that side. And, and that's what I feel is the prime sin that we're experiencing here is that they constantly say there's only one of two positions you have to choose, but it's a it's a false choice, right? There, there are nuances that belong in here. And it was the same thing with, well, here's what happens. So this happened to me. I would have told you flat out prior to COVID on no uncertain terms, I am not an anti-vaxxer. Now, because they've, they, in this story, the opposition has said, well, Chris, you know, you either are one or you aren't one. And if you ask any questions at all, then you are one. And they wore me down, Brett. And now I just go, yeah, I'm an anti-vaxxer. You've won the rhetorical left-right dynamic, and you forced me to choose, and it's not the choice I think you wanted me to take. But I feel that same polemic being stood up, which is you have to choose between two things when when there's actually a third choice, which is neither position, that actually makes sense. Well, I mean, may maybe the thing to do is to, we've got to level up our game here. And in fact, mm. uh, the more I think about it, more likely it is that something in this quadrant is right. Um, I mean, there are places that are quite binary. And so it doesn't make sense to pretend, for example, that you're not either with the terrorists or the flat earthers. And I don't know which one you are, but uh, <laughs> you're you're it's you're in one of those two camps. And so, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'd love to find out because uh, I'd hate to think you were in the opposite camp. But if you are, then so be it. So, Chris, is it terrorists or flat earthers? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't know. But somehow. I, I feel like, first of all, and Heather and I are very unlikely influencers. We were very at home in the classroom. That's not an influencer role. That's a kind of analytical mentor role. And the idea that this would have any important role in public is um, 
seems strange to me every day. On the other hand, the job of getting you to see that which maybe should be obvious but isn't, that's what we do. And this incessant defining of teams is, of course, not only destructive of our ability to do anything useful, but it is analytically insane. You, if you, if you want to get the Middle East right, for example, you should be obsessed with figuring out what should be on the map that for whatever reason isn't. You need to find those things. And the idea that each time you discover something that's not on the map, that it's going to, that you have to, you have to shoehorn it into a, a, a binary team narrative, obviously that's wrong. Flag waving is not analysis. And it doesn't matter whether or not ultimately you're going to end up under one flag or another. The point is you should end up there as the result of a process of analysis that tells you this is actually the right place to stand, if at all. And I'm I'm now, I'm sure you're in some version of this as well, but I'm living a nightmare because I'm trying to say something that I think is really important about what's going on in the Middle East. It's much more important than the current conflict, as terrifying as the current conflict actually is, and as destructive as the potential of that conflict actually is. I'm trying to say something about why that conflict doesn't resolve and what would have to be accomplished in order for us to put it to rest forever. And the problem is it is being um, viewed... You remember back in the early days of computer games mm -hmm. where there were a lot of low resolution games that had, mm -hmm. you know, whatever the thing was that you were after was rendered in very large blocks, mm -hmm. right? It's like forcing everything into a narrative in which everything is rendered so crudely that it couldn't possibly be useful, right? How do you just get people to just calm down and, and not jump to conclusions about what a person is saying as they as they are trying to figure out how to view the conflict from a perspective that is both useful and non-standard. It seems simple that we should all want to do that. And everybody's so terrified that the other side is going to win a point that it's like not allowed. Well, I think you're the perfect person to talk about, not just because of how your 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 logical brain is structured, but from an evolutionary standpoint, can we just back up a second? So from an evolutionary standpoint, how do we understand war? Well, I'll, I'll start with the shallow end of the pool, and then I'll move to deeper water. I, I may have said this even in our last conversation, but it bears repeating. Heather's PhD advisor is a guy named Arnold Kluge, still alive, still very, very vital. Um, when you went into his office to talk to him, you sat in, you know, a particular chair facing the side of his file cabinet, which had one and only one note on it, which he had very carefully placed there. The note was, it's about power and limiting resources, stupid. It's that. So... Mm. The idea that you're going to look at a conflict in which a huge amount of megatonnage is being dropped and a huge number of people are being 
destroyed. And you are going to imagine that this is actually about a difference in epistemology, right? A difference in belief about the way the universe works. No, it isn't. At the very least, you need to start looking at what the resources are. And the resource may be land. Um, but you have to look at what the resources are. And you have to look at the players, both the ones that you can see in the video of the conflict and the ones that are hidden, that are pushing others into conflict for reasons that you probably know very little about. So power and limiting resources, that's what all conflicts where people are uh, dying in large numbers are about. So you have to you have to at least say, until I see what the power and limiting resources are, um, I'm not informed. Right. But it's also the case, and this is a, a major frustration I have with my evolutionary colleagues. When human beings engage in warfare or genocide, and really I see those two things as different flavors of the same process, you are either engaging in a fight to the death over a border, then it's war, or you're doing it within a border, and then it's genocide. And so it is not wrong to look at the impulses that cause human beings to engage in this very expensive and perilous behavior as similar. You can have, you know, to, to say that a war might have genocidal uh, impetus is not incorrect in general. But why? Well, you should at least notice that when populations go to war with each other, that they end up reducing the number of resources that belong to a competing lineage. Now, that I say that I'm frustrated with my evolutionary colleagues about this because when I say something like that, I get a ton of pushback, which makes no sense because what I'm saying is evolutionary wins, especially patterns that extend back uh, indefinitely into human history and prehistory, when you win evolutionarily, it is unlikely to be pure accident. And if it is pure accident, it will happen once. It will not be a pattern. So the fact that human beings have a thing called war that they do engage in, and when you win one, it tends to result in more resources going to your population and just by accident tends to reduce the number of resources that go to some competing population and that those populations mm -hmm. aren't loosey-goosey. Those populations tend to be people who are genetically more distant. The ones that you are going to war against tend to be genetically more distant than you are to the ones on your team in a war. So that's evolutionarily as you would expect. So why is it that you know any evolutionist, pick anybody who studied the topic, and you look at the behavior of a bowerbird, which is, of course, utterly paradoxical and bizarre. But there's no disagreement amongst an any group of evolutionists about whether or not they are doing what they are doing for an underlying genetic purpose, that they are advancing their genes into the future by behaving in ways that are difficult for us to understand. But if we look at people that happen to be behaving in ways that obviously move their genes into the future in some uh, predictable way, and we say, well, that's actually evolution in action. 
doing something that has nothing to do with the content of what's being said about this conflict? Then the answer is, no, it's culture. You're extrapolating. You're applying Darwinian tools where they don't belong. And it's like, no, that's nonsense. The burden of proof. Mm -hmm. If you think that human beings are advancing their genetic interests accidentally again and again across history, the burden is on you to establish how that could possibly be the case. So my point is, like it or not, evolutionary tools at least belong in every conversation where we are trying to figure out what warfare is about, trying to prevent it. And I will go one step further, and I will just say, if you really believe in never again, if there are things you just never want to see, not one mm -hmm. more time in history, then maybe it is true that if we talk about these things in the proper evolutionary terms, we will not find a solution, but it's our best hope. If you try to prevent that conversation, because at the moment you want to talk about how awful the people on the other side are, you are preventing us from accessing the one tool that might solve it. I completely agree. I resonate with all of that. And this is exactly the conversation I want to have because, um, so let's admit that somewhere in our evolutionary past, the wiring, the circuitry got installed that enables something like war. And war isn't like this one-off that accidentally happened because of some culture. Every single culture I can show you has some warlike tendency around it because they bumped up against a tribe and this whole idea of the noble savage and they were all living in peace in the Garden of Eden, not true, right? They, they generally speaking were in conflict with the neighboring tribe. So, so, so that is just writ large now. Um, and so I want to rotate this conversation to this one direction because to put two pieces together to say that fundamentally all wars at heart are about resources, whether that's power or physical resources like oil. True, in my mind. Okay. And the second thing is that we have this wired into us. But here's the thing. We can see in individual cases, in small examples, that this we can break that wiring. We can be both and, right? We can be both these wired, hardwired for conflict species that seems destined for, to shoot itself in both feet and a couple of kneecaps. Or we can be these evolved um more sentient beings that can uh, that can separate from that. So I'm wondering how how can we begin to maybe load the dice to begin to navigate to this other state that we know we're capable of because we can I can give you examples, right? Um so I want to know how to get there and 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 this came to me in a blinding insight a while ago when I was talking with a um a woman who is a an executive coach she said, oh, you know, these executives, they want more, they want this, they want to be better at executiving, and they want this, and they want that. And she usually lets them settle down about two, three months of prying and prodding. And she said, Chris, my job is to get them to understand that the gateway word to happiness is enough. That's where the critical insight comes in, because they already have enough. They don't think they're still operating from a scarcity mindset. So I, I submit to you that I see these billionaires with their mega yachts and jet fleets and five trophy properties and three X trophy wives and all of that. They're, they just haven't found the, they don't have an, an off switch. They're, they haven't found enough. There's never enough. So I submit that if we can't get into enough, <laughs> we, we can't, we can't, we'll, we'll just stay in what you call, you know, condition A or, or lineage, lineage approach. So, so. What have you seen that that helps you understand the ways in which we can actually break our programming, as it were, and use that wonderful human adaptability to be something other than that? Um, excellent framing and questions. And in each case, I'm going to try to reconstruct 
the picture you painted and I'm going to just try to put one extra level of depth on each thing so that people can see the picture because I think in the end the picture isn't all that complex it's just hard to access it so let's start with the idea of the noble savage and the inherent warlikeness of people on the one hand I agree this is a potential that exists in all people because all people have ancestors who succeeded by engaging in warfare. So it would be strange if we did not carry that potential with us. But I would also point out you can make the same argument for rape. And in fact, rape is uh, part of warfare still, but it was in the history of warfare, a very, very important part of, of that process. Um, that is not an accident either. When people are engaged in behavior that very specifically spreads their genes, you have to ask yourself, what role is evolution playing, as ugly as that answer may be? But mm -hmm. So rape is a potential that we all carry with us. But I want people to notice something odd about that fact. Women are included. Women carry the potential for, for rape, but it is unrealized because the physiology does not make it a meaningful program for women absent very strange circumstances, right? Women cannot easily engage in rape. And so the fact that they carry the genetic potential is irrelevant or almost. The fact, though, that is more important is that many men do not have the potential to rape. What am I saying? Well, if you're not turned on by it, then you're effectively in the same position as a woman who doesn't have the, the morphology to engage in it. So there is a developmental question, which is, are the conditions that cause rape to be off the table present in your upbringing, or is rape a live possibility because your upbringing leaves that circuitry active? So the fact that it's genetically there doesn't mean that you're a potential rapist, right? It means that the zygote that you came from was, and then developmentally, you know, just the same way I'm not going to spontaneously speak Mandarin. I don't know how to speak Mandarin. Was I born with the potential? Of course. But I just didn't have the developmental exposure, and it would be a Herculean effort for me to acquire the capacity to speak Mandarin. So the genetic potential is there in all of us for both rape and warfare. The question is, what developmentally has to be true in order for this potential not to be realized. And I'm going to now partially rescue the noble savage. I agree with your presentation that because all human beings have warfare in their past, that the potential is there in everyone. But the key issue and the reason in some ways that the story of the new world that was rediscovered by Europeans in 1492 is a confusing story I think, is that in part, actually, the savages, while not noble, were more noble. And the reason for that is that the New World was not full. Um, now, the New World was not full in two different ways. What we think happened in the New World is that a population that was living in a place called Beringia that's now underwater because sea levels have risen as a result of it having warmed up, the Beringians found the New World. They they essentially, um, as the last ice age ended, skirted under this mile-thick sheet of ice and ended up in Washington, what is now Washington State, 
staring at two continents that had no people in them. They spread out and discovered hundreds of different ways of existing in these new, very odd places. But as long as they were spreading out because the the uh, the land was not at carrying capacity as far as clever humans go, the need to fight each other was reduced. And so mm-hmm. at the point that Europeans arrived, two things were probably true. Those land masses were filling, you know, something like 50 million people seem to have lived in the Americas at the point that Cristobal Colon rediscovered the place. Or another way to say it would be discovered it on behalf of Europeans. It had already been thoroughly discovered by Asians who had come through Beringia. But the place was still filling up. People were learning how to use the resources there, and there was still the pie was still growing. And then even more to the point, the fact that those Europeans brought smallpox with them and that those those continents emptied out of people. It wasn't even something that the Europeans did intentionally. They had no idea that there was a bias in the direction that diseases would go. They were just looking for treasure and new places to make a profit. And as far as we know, they did not even understand that they had brought something to the new world that was just decimating these populations uh, ahead of them. But that meant that also the you know to the extent that the place wasn't full when they arrived it became even less full rather rapidly and so we have no real grasp on what effect that has on what the the observers the western observers the european observers made of what they saw was a very odd thing it was a disrupted set of populations so anyway to to close this um this line of argument out the thing that allows people to get along in a non-warlike, non-genocidal way is the sense of enough. But enough is not a simple parameter. It's not the willpower to recognize, hey, I live pretty well. I guess I should stop pursuing more. That doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work <laughs> is that human beings are um, evolved creatures with a long history of discovering opportunities that they did not know were present until they pondered them. So a human being who says, I'm not going to look for opportunities is going to lose in competition with a human being that never stops looking for opportunities. So we are the descendants of people who were insatiable. Mm -hmm. That's bad. However, there is a way to hack our own system so that we stop being insatiable. And the fact is, when things are improving, when you have discovered some mechanism, if you, you start a business and it does very well, and so as it grows, your income goes up, you are not necessarily looking to start another new business, right? You are satisfied with a rate of growth that is acceptable because it feels, you know, each year you have more disposable income, you see your savings and therefore your security uh, go up with time. And so it feels like whatever I'm doing is the right thing. That's what enough feels like. So punchline of this story, if you want people not to be genocidal and warlike, you have to create a system in which hard work generates growth for the person that is not dependent on growth of the economy, right? And to the extent that that is true, People will be much more collaborative. They will be much less vindictive. They will bring things to humanity that improve our collective well-being, which ought to be 
the objective of the exercise in the first place. And that's what we should be shooting for. It's, it's what Heather and I call the fourth frontier, which is a mechanism for engineering a steady state that feels like growth so that people are not inclined to default into these more violent modes. Well, I like that because it it, it means we, we're recognizing the wiring we have. You know, one of my favorite diagrams is this tantric wheel that takes you from zygote to a, a crawling infant. That now you're down at six o'clock. You're you're a young person, you know, first engaging in love. And by about nine o'clock, it starts to get a little S and M. And from nine o'clock to twelve o'clock, you're just murdering people, right? And they say, look, that's in each of us. We have all of that. And the point isn't to extirpate the dark so you're only the light. It's to integrate the whole and say, this is all of me. And if under certain conditions, I'm I'm at eleven o'clock, and under other conditions, I'm at six thirty, right? And and so so the you got to you got to understand that's all of us. Right. I like that idea that that just acknowledge that that's all every one of us. There's none of us are better or worse. You know, this has been disturbing watching these people say those people are really awful. I'm like, I can go to every culture and I can show you amazing examples of humanity and awful examples of humanity from every single culture, race, however you're dividing people. Right. That's just how it is. So you integrate that. And you say that's how we are. We have that in us. And now the the way this other stuff comes out is we have to make sure the conditions are right so that this comes out, not that, because under the right conditions, all of us become homicidal maniacs and all of us can be much better human beings, right? It depends what the conditions are. So I'm worried because I see this sort of Old Testament-y uh, lineage A stuff as you talk about it, um, gaining foothold at a time when I know for a fact, because of my work in, in looking at larger resource issues, the pie is now stagnant. And it's about to begin shrinking through nothing anybody can do anything about unless there's, you know, Area 51 secret alien technology, which may be a curse of its own, should that happen. But we're now coming into a position where the pie is going to shrink and we're going to apply old school thinking into that landscape. And I think that's a recipe for disaster if we don't have the conversation like we're having. We have to get... That's what I don't like is how we can't have these conversations because it's not the right time. It's an emergency. You have to pick. Are you a flat earther or a terrorist? Right. You know, and I'm over here with you going, no, no, this is exactly the right time to have a conversation. And we, for our kids sake and grandkids sake, as yet unborn, we better be having this conversation because default mode, I think, is a disaster. Yeah, default mode is going to be the death of humanity. It never was before because we didn't have sufficiently powerful technology, but it will be now. And so mm -hmm. the whole thing nets out to a question of, can you figure out how to think your way into a different mode that has never um, been seen before? Or can't you? If your life depended on it, could you could you do something new? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I wanted to pick up on two, two other themes here. You... Um, First of all, the wave of anti-Semitism that we are seeing um, is something else. And there, is a, there are a lot of people saying it's not real, it's overrated. Uh, no, it's real. And what's more, the little riff I gave you a few minutes ago about populations uh, being able, if there is room to grow to be better to each other and that the contraction causes this violence also triggers very specifically anti-semitism for reasons that i started exploring back when i was in college so if you know how to look at this 
you know exactly where we are in history. This is a contraction that is going to cause a massive wave of anti-Semitism. It is going to cause increasing warlikeness across all populations. And you are exactly right that what this is going to do, it is going to drag us back into the Old Testament. And hey, can I, can, yeah, I need it. a definition um, because uh, I, I just haven't been close enough to it and, and I haven't lived it. So please pardon my ignorance, but I, I think I'm asking for a lot of people. I don't know what anti-Semitism means. Is that against the genes? Is it against the culture? Is it against a political orientation? What what is can can you help me understand what that means? Yes, I am using it in the sloppiest way because I don't have a better term that people know. So I'm sort of caught between and for one thing, uh, in the uh, Israel Palestine context, you've got technically Semites on both sides. So I am just simply using it as a substitute for saying Jew hatred because I can't stand that term, right? Okay. That term uh, just for multiple reasons, it's not the right term. For one thing, it's a new term. And the point is, actually, this is a historical pattern for a reason. And it has always been called anti-Semitism. And so I want people to understand that I am referring to that long history and I'm doing so for a reason. This is not um, this is a pattern that is comprehensible. Now, you point to something very interesting and uh, complex when you allude to the fact that you have various different lineages um, that are adhering to the same sacred texts, right? The, the, the Jews uh, that are derived from populations that were living in the Middle East are quite different than the Jews who were living in Europe, of which there were two different stripes. So why it is that you have multiple different lineages that are united by a sacred text is a complex story. It involves understanding that these, these texts are products of evolution. They are not products of genetic evolution, but that ought to make very little difference to you. The most important way in which it is uh, relevant is that cultural evolution, which is equally biological as genetic evolution, has a special tool, which is that it can move horizontally between populations. So a sacred text can jump into a new population and those people can recognize each other as effectively allies. Now, those allyships can break down. In other words, the subpopulations, just as you have sectarian violence in Christendom, you know, between uh, Protestants and Catholics, for example, you have uh, every potential for sectarian differences, which are really uh, proxy for genetic differences to break out amongst lineages of Jews, too. And this is certainly uh, nowhere more uh, relevant than it is in Islam. A number of people from different lineages who subscribe to Islam is also uh, large. So mm -hmm. in each of these cases, we're having to um, speak in some simple terms to simply to get anywhere. So I'm saying anti-Semitism is the result of Jews living in a surprising way. Um, the analogy I would use is, you know, every time I see a hummingbird, 
I think. I would never have thought if I was a creator, I would never have thought to design that creature. It's too strange. The, the mm -hmm. high throughput of energy, right, in this tiny, fragile thing that can't afford to store any energy on its body, that sounds like a dead end to me. And yet it obviously works. Jews are a little bit like this. They live uh, as a diaspora, always as a minority population inside of other nations, which is a vulnerable position to be in. I believe that the history of vulnerability and, in fact, the history of persecution has created a special skill set, which is transmitted culturally. One of the things I would love to see is that skill set just simply democratized, right? There are a lot of, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. many populations have something to teach all the other populations. Jews have a special toolkit, you know, I, I've talked about it before. I think a Jewish dinner table in which people hold each other's feet to the fire and search for flaws in each other's arguments. And it's not personal, even if it becomes heated because people believe passionately in what they're saying. That skill set is like, you know, school every day at dinner. And um, that's useful, right? It's really good. And it, it is, in my opinion, it is the reason that you have so many Jews who have achieved important things. I'm not a fan of the Nobel Prize uh, in modern times because it's obviously so highly political, but the number of Nobel Prizes that Jews have won across many disciplines is obviously conspicuous. What is that? Oh, I think it's the result of a contagious style of thinking that would be good if it spread because who knows how many things we're not discovering because there's only a tiny number of, of Jews doing that thing. So anyway, um, the, the point is culture spreads horizontally and it is a proxy for underlying genes. Because Jews live as a diaspora and because they are good at living as a diaspora, they tend to accumulate resources, which means that when times get bad, going after whatever Jews happen to be in your, uh, your vicinity is a good way of creating phony growth. The only problem is it involves killing people. So that's where we are in history. We're at the point where people suddenly find their resentment for Jews. And uh, I've got to tell you, it's not, it's not a comfortable world to live in at the moment if you're Jewish. Mm. And I, if I'm honest, I don't really expect it to go back to normal. I think really? we, have, we have kicked over into this new phase. People have found, not only have they found their own visceral evolutionary uh, anger, but they've started toying with all of the traditional tropes. So they're now getting used to hearing these things said and not being uh, chastised for it because there are a lot of other people finding the same things. And it's a tragic transition because not only is it just bad for Jews, it's bad for planet Earth because it is the hallmark of, hey, you're headed back to the Old Testament. There's one place you don't want to be. That's it. Right. Look at Moses's mm -hmm. laws of war. Right. These are absolutely despicable laws that nobody wants to live under. Right. Um, so the the solution to this is actually an evolutionary upgrade. And we you know, this is this is a point that Jews do not like to hear said, but modern Jews, Jews who wish to be a part of the cosmopolitan West which is most of us, um, are actually 
living downstream of some culture that has moved into Judaism. Nobody teaches Moses's laws of war to anybody. They're disgusting, right? What we have is a, you know, a monogamous population of people who collaborate, you know, with people from other races because it's the right thing to do. And those things are downstream of things like the story of the Good Samaritan and the um, the Sermon on the Mount, right? Um, the Golden Rule. These things are broadening of the viewpoint of who is worthy of human compassion. And I would argue that in the stories, those stories, the story of the Good Samaritan, um, the Good Samaritan helps somebody who is not of his direct lineage because it's the right thing to do. And does he surrender everything to this person? No, he doesn't. But he buys him a couple days at the inn to recover from having been beaten by savages, right? That is a story of a broadening of empathy to a larger group. Now, in Christendom, it's not broadened to all of humanity. It sort of hints at it, right? Maybe in, in Buddhism, we find at least some of the subsets of Buddhists who are experimenting with the idea of broadening it to everyone. And in some cases, they may broaden it absurdly beyond people, maybe to inanimate objects. I mean, I'm not an expert in it. But the point is, we are always experimenting with how large to draw the circle of empathy. And the answer is, given modern tech, that circle of empathy has to include all people who are willing to broaden their circle of empathy to all people, right? And this is, this is to me, the bitter pill of this is that it really, in the end, is going to come down to an us and a them. And I hope nobody is left in the them category, right? It's not a category that you're born into and obligated to. It's a category you choose. But if you're interested in participating with other humans to collaborate with them uh, in a morally upstanding way, if you're willing to join the us, then there's no reason you need to be the enemy. But anybody who adheres to this, this uh, ancient lineage against lineage violence view of the world is a danger to humanity as a whole. And so the point is, okay, you've now defined yourself as the enemy, and I'm not going to be apologetic about thinking that we need to address the hazard you create, right? I'd much rather you wake up and uh, take on a, a modern enlightened mindset and join us. It would be great if us and them came down to, hey, nobody's over there with them. Isn't that beautiful? That's the way it should go. But if it's not, then the point is within every population, we have to confront the people who are trying to pull us into the, the old rules, right? And this this is quite true in, in Jewish populations. You have hardliners who view the world as... Uh, and, you know, I don't even know how to describe it, but they view people who are not within the tribe as somehow not deserving of, uh, of being treated as humans. It's not most of us. Most of us love living in the West and being able to collaborate with people and not giving a damn what their genes are like. So mm -hmm. um, I don't know if I've just said stuff that's going to get me in terrible trouble once again. But I do think that's the way this this nets out. The question is, the enlightened mindset off, offers a possibility for a future world that's actually um, comparatively lovely. But at the moment, we are being dragged rapidly back into a set of rules that 
anybody who understands what they describe uh, would be terrified of. I, I agree. And thank you for going down this path. I think my first exposure to sort of understanding this, I was a young man at the time. There were these, I was living down in Florida and there were these riots in Liberty City, which was the worst part of Miami. I mean, just the worst. It was like totally destroyed. It was a black community. And there were all these riots. And the the spark of the riots was that these Koreans had moved in. They came over with nothing, except they had a culture where they worked hard. They bought the stores. They kept all their money in family. They expected the kids to work. And I think that the flashpoint was that, that the Koreans were now becoming successful on the backs of the black. They were they were, the you know, stealing our money. Right. Because they came in and they proved, I think. This was possibly the part that was that was unacceptable was they proved that it wasn't the condition. It wasn't it wasn't that that street corner was blighted. It was that you had a bad operating model and these people have a better operating model. And so that led to a lot of friction. Right. So I think that was my first understanding. I was in my early 20s at that point. I was like, this is weird. And I couldn't quite understand it because I grew up in a white Connecticut, you know, very, very homogenous sort of an upbringing. Um, and, and, and so then when I was studying that, I was like, OK, so this felt it felt fairly fairly um, evolutionarily understandable. This is humans in conflict for resources. And so greed and envy, you know, are seven deadly sins. I think what you're describing here is there's a sense of, of that greed and envy, right? So I would rather live in an enlightened culture where we actually looked at successful models and we say, how are you doing that, right? My country ought to have looked at Uttar Pradesh and said, what are you doing? We have something to learn from you. You're clearly fat battling COVID in the right way based on every known statistic what are you doing? Right. But we didn't do that. Right. And so if we could just take a small piece of this, um, uh, just just to begin to unpack this, because sometimes I like the fractals. So this is a tiny piece of the story. But I think, Brett, I'm finally ready to declare that the thought form that I'm going to shorthand is woke here. Uh, and that could mean a lot of things. But uh, let's call it woke. I think it's a disaster. Right. You and I experienced firsthand that these people with a woke orientation, they went around COVID, right? They weren't at all interested in developing better arguments and having a proper debate. They weren't even content with simply silencing the other side. Mm -mm. They wanted blood, Brett. They wanted to destroy earning potentials. They wanted to get people fired. And if we can take them at their word, some of them wanted to put people like us in some sort of re-education camps or punishment gulags. I don't know what they wanted, right? But recently, uh, my good friend Jicky from Twitter, um, you know, who shall, of course, remain anonymous, he had to back away due to these threats, right? Um, despite being inarguably more right than entire multi-billion dollar federal agencies every step of the way. But now I feel we saw the true depravity of the woke people when they were openly celebrating the specific actions of Hamas, right? And, and this is not, I don't want to open up again the wider conversation about the treatment of Palestinians. Historically, there's a lot to unpack there, but really it's it, it's um, it's that we saw people openly celebrating truly despicable acts. And, and I think this exposed this particular mind virus for, for what it is. I think it's an extraordinary danger. And I think a lot of people have fallen for it. And I believe Matthias Desmond is right, that if this mind virus is not somehow checked, it ends in mass atrocities that is its natural conclusion oh that is agree? and 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 if so how do we how do we nudge this ship in a new direction uh, a couple things or a dozen things um that is where we are headed that is just simply where we are headed that's where this 
this naturally goes. So I don't think we need to be timid about Matthias Desmet's uh, conclusion. Now, I like James Lindsay's point, which is that we are we are watching people play with the seeds of genocide. And what he says next is, we don't know if those seeds will be planted in the earth, whether they will be watered. We don't know, but they are definitely playing with the seeds that grow into that that tree. So anyway, I, I believe those warnings should be heated at the highest level. I'm uh, fascinated that you have settled on the the de facto wokeness of the uh, the what would you say the mainstream COVID forces. Mm-hmm. I I had forgotten until you mentioned it that in the early part of uh, our battle with those people, Heather and I used to refer to them as medically woke. Right, that's just what they are. They are behaving yeah. in exactly the way that the woke folks do on a topic that is not traditionally considered uh, under that umbrella. And I also agree that the fact that the woke did not register the horror of what Hamas did on October 7th was a powerful indication of where they're coming from. I don't care what you think about the history of that conflict. No intact person should have looked at the behavior of Hamas relative to the people that they were attacking and not been deeply unsettled by it. You know, the torture of people who they knew full well weren't going to survive the hour. That was done for a reason. And to have uh, the woke left Uh, effectively championing this because it just simply was the people waving the flag that they had come to recognize as righteous uh, evidenced the absolute failure of normal moral decency to be there. Um, Okay, but I do want to go back and address your story about uh, Koreans moving into a black neighborhood and causing resentment because what I've been saying about issues of race in the U.S. since, I don't know, early in my days of teaching college, maybe even before that, is that there are two populations in the U.S. that actually have a special claim on uh, having been uniquely oppressed. One of them is the Black population, the African-derived population, and the other is the indigenous Indian population. And the reason this is a a very unpleasant conclusion. It has an unpleasant midpoint, but it also, I think, holds the key to, to addressing the problem in an honorable way in the end. In the case of both the African-derived population and the indigenous Indian population, you have lineages in which the cultural inheritance was systematically destroyed. Mm-hmm. And that that has an implication. When Koreans move into a black neighborhood and succeed, it's not because blacks are incapable of doing the same thing. It's because the toolkit that allows the Koreans to do it is something that they were allowed to import from their home culture. They came over intact. And, you know, let's let's, uh, deal with the, the black version of this. You have slave ships 
which are bringing people from West Africa, from many different populations, people who speak different languages, and they are being um, placed into situations where they can't even recover what they knew from their homeland because they will be forced to go through uh, what linguistically is called a pigeon. Pigeon, as you probably know, is a proto-language that people who do not speak the same language but are forced to work together will generate in order to exchange vital information. So you can imagine uh, somebody who speaks Portuguese and somebody uh, who speaks Japanese, if they found themselves in an environment where they had to accomplish something or they were going to be punished, then they would figure out, they would come up with words that you could recognize. But it's not a full language. It's not a, a language that allows you to exchange abstractions. It's just a, a, a prototype. And um, so by taking people who may have superficially looked similar to the Europeans who were trafficking them and not only grouping them together incoherently, but systematically disrupting families, selling children out from under their parents and all of this, you prevent the toolkit, the cultural toolkit that would allow people to innovate properly from being transmitted. And you do that because you, the Europeans who did it didn't want them to revolt. So it wanted them hobbled. But then at the point that the slaves are liberated, there may have been the desire on behalf of some of the uh, the Europeans to democratize the cultural tools that would be necessary, but there was obviously um, a conflict of interest, right? Educating other people's children so they compete with your children successfully is something people in general don't do. And so it's part of why our school system mm -hmm. sucks is people don't want to pay to have other people's children educated because to the extent that they have a leg up, which is what the people in power do, um, they would like, you know, as George Carlin used to say, they would want people, you know, just smart enough to operate the machines, right? No smarter. So anyway, I do think that in the case of both the indigenous population and the imported African population, the systematic disruption of culture needed a remedy that was never fully offered. And that means that while in the case of most of the populations, you know, people, minority populations are always discriminated against in one regard or another. But if you have, if you have an intact cultural package and it allows you to overcome that uh, obstacle, that's one thing. If you've had that package dismantled for uh, reasons of keeping you corralled, um, then we're in a different situation. So uh, anyway, and again, as a biologist, my colleagues will tend to see this as a genetic story. I don't think this has anything to do with genes. I think this has to do with cultural packages and the beauty of that. It didn't have to be this way. What if it was genes? We'd be in terrible trouble. But because it's cultural, the point is, oh, we could democratize this stuff if we got serious about it. Um, and... And of course, it's the honorable thing to do. Um, so anyway, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, in, in a hierarchical society, by definition, somebody's on the top, somebody's on the bottom. So you have to have some sort of a segregating mechanism that, that gives you a bottom, right? And so we've been, you've just been describing that there could be a, a cultural 
flag that identifies people to be pushed there, or it could be some other reason. But but we're coming out of that old lineage A mindset, which is colonialization, which is, you know, we're, we're just going to extract resources, whether that's human resources, natural resources, whatever those things happen to be. All right. So that's been the old model. We're coming into this new phase of humanity where there are actual limits to growth, right? Like, like there are no new continents to just go out there and start spreading across, right? We've pretty well 3D mapped the entire surface of the planet above and below water. Like we, we know what's there. And, and I would be stupidly shocked if we found another Middle East worth of oil just magically hiding somewhere, right? Because we punched a lot of holes in the earth looking for it. So we, we probably know what we've got. And this is a new condition for humans. Like we're alive at a very weird period of time. When I was born, there were 3 billion people on the planet. Soon enough, we'll get to nine, right? That's a really weird condition to be alive during. And on the one side, that means you have more people doing really clever stuff because there's more chances for geniuses to show up, whether their culture supports that or not. They happen, right? Um, but uh, but we don't have, I, I'm worried we don't have that wiring. Let, let me just be really gross about, we're, we're the yeast that fell into a big old vat of sugar and we got the growth part of the story down, cold, baby. <laughs> We're not so sure about the asymptote part of this story. That's the awkward, you know, place we're at right now. And so, but to the extent we find ourselves using the old tools to try and map into this new territory, I'm I'm really worried. It's just, it's not a, it's not a really good strategy. Um, yeah, it's a fatal strategy. And, you know, I like your, your yeast example, because uh, if you pair it with the, the analogy I've been using, which is a game of musical chairs as the, as the growth slows and stops, it's not one chair shy. It's 30% of the chairs aren't there. And so that causes people to default into lineage against lineage violence. Mm -hmm. But the point is actually, if you extrapolate further, that game keeps going until there are no chairs, right? No chairs, nobody. So the point is you can, you can win the, the diabolical game of genocidal musical chairs, but only temporarily in order for your descendants 20 generations from now to still be on this planet we have to actually figure out how to suspend the diabolical genocidal game of musical chairs and do something different which is readily possible and it doesn't depend on finding uh new sources of of oil what it depends on is us utilizing what we have in such a way that we actually get to, I see two possibilities, but there are more. Um, uh, some of my friends who like me in part because I have been um, properly alarmed at the hazard posed by our civilian nuclear reactors mm -hmm. will be horrified to hear me say that I entertain the possibility of a world in which fourth generation reactors uh, are a part of the solution, but fourth gen nuclear reactors are a very different animal, um, and can you know they they don't exist. I mean, they have existed in various forms, but our nuclear reactors are second generation. The ones that are still operating today, the fourth generation ones have some advantages. They can actually burn nuclear waste from the second generation reactors that we've been running. Um, they are have a a promising safety profile. Uh, what they run on is not so destructive inherently as uranium that has to be mined and enriched, enriched etc. But anyway, fourth generation nuclear, 
I'm open to that possibility that that could substantially replace a large fraction of the fossil fuels that we have. Um, I'm also always open to the possibility that fusion might, uh, instead of just being perpetually, you know, 20 years down the road, we could actually get to it. And if we can, if we can wisely use the fossil fuels that we have, we can moderate the risk that they might pose. And I'm not basing the idea that there's a risk on anybody's models. I don't believe models. They're too easily gamed, but there are other reasons to worry. I wouldn't panic over it, but manage the fossil fuel resources that we have to get us to the next chapter, which might be fourth gen nuclear, maybe fourth gen nuclear gets us to fusion. If we can figure out how to wisely deploy those things so they don't become force multipliers for the people who would like to enslave us, that would be um, key. Um, before I let you respond to that, though, I wanted to go back. You said somebody has to be on top, right? Now, of course, that's true. If you're going to have any sort of decent system that makes sense other than on paper, if you're not going to try communism one more time and just discover that it doesn't work, um, then there are going to be, be people ahead in the system that you create. And that's not bad. In fact, it's a good thing as long as the people who are ahead aren't ahead by virtue of rent-seeking behavior. Rent-seeking behavior being the destruction of wealth that is profitable. Mm -hmm. If people are ahead because they've brought something to humanity that's awesome and they've gotten paid for it, those people should have the best real estate and the most say over you know, how to spend any given hour of the day. And the people who haven't done that should be incentivized by the fact that if they do bring something useful to humanity, it will pay. You know, So a system of actual merit that put people on top and didn't put them on top at an absurd level that was mostly due to rent-seeking that they were able to do because they had made a profit on some invention, then that's the system you want. You want a system in which we don't all live at the same economic level, but the people at the top are there because they've contributed and that incentivizes others to do it. And the market is open to everybody so that everybody has the potential to do it. And we've democratized the tools that would allow you to take advantage of the access you have to the market. That's a world that actually makes sense. And it's non-utopian. And it does produce exactly the thing that would cause people not to default into lineage against lineage violence, because when times are good, Right? When you can actually find useful opportunities in the universe, then people prefer that to lineage against lineage violence. And the populations that are committed to lineage against lineage violence are largely there because they've been frozen out of the alternative. Right, So <clears throat> in any case, um, like I, I, I know I'm going on and on, which is going to complicate your... Well, well, yeah, now, now you're in, in territory that I I'm absolutely love because, you know, in 2000... Nine, I, I renamed my website from chrismartinson.com to this thing called Peak Prosperity, right? Which is double entendre. Um, but the idea was that if we weren't careful, this is it. We were going to, like, people would forever be looking back. This is like the people in ancient, you know, say medieval Europe saying, how did the Romans build that beautiful thing here? We don't even know. Like, we lost the technology. So I'm worried that we're going to default into a peak of what we'll experience as prosperity, um, you know, good living standards and and people with enough free time to do really awesome, clever things and really expand their brains and, and develop amazing stuff. Because when people are scratching out subsistence living from the earth, they don't have time to make awesome other things, right? And and so it's just, we've had this amazing bequeathment of 
of energy and we've used it in some good ways and maybe i would submit maybe we've squandered a bit um but here we are and uh I will submit to you though that the core of this, like if you, if like we wanted to rotate this Rubik's cube and look at the at the yellow face this time, we have a dishonest system of money, and it promotes that rent seeking. It promotes what we'll call financialization, which is defined loosely as using money to make money, but you don't produce anything, right? Our our heroes once upon a time were say Do Joe DiMaggio and Albert Einstein, right? Today it's uh, I guess we got to get Ray Dalio and Ken Griffin, you know, just these. These are guys, smart, hardworking, but they haven't made a thing. They make money with money, right? And that financialization has gone to such a point that it's actually been grotesquely corrupting. And I have this, this whole series of books by Will Durant about you know history. And you can pull out this book of Athens from, say, 300 BC. And they went through a, a period where they debased their coinage. And when you read the descriptions of why it fell apart, it sounds like today. Their best and their brightest were busy gaming and they were scheming and they were coming up with ways to, you know, uh, uh, scrape, you know, the, the, use the debasement to their to their advantage, to, you know, all this, all the same behaviors. And they fell apart because their culture fundamentally moved away from producing things into into gaming things because we're humans. We love our incentives. So I submit we have a big, big problem, which is that our fundamental concept of money ever since Bretton Woods, Two was abandoned in 1971 has been absolutely untethered and it's been absolutely unfair. There is not a reason in the world some of these people on Wall Street are worth earning air quotes, two air quotes around that, a couple billion dollars a year, you know, thousands of dollars per per second, right? Or whatever the numbers work out to. That we have a debased system of money. And because of that, we we do, I, the world you're describing, I think, needs honest money, where because you produce something of value, you're rewarded for that. And you can store that, you know, in, in this thing we call money, right? Uh, we don't have that. And I'm worried we, we, we can't have the world you're describing without what I would call sound money. Oh, I, of course, totally agree with this. I want to just add a little nuance to the model that you present just because um, I think it makes sense to, to keep us out of trouble with the nitpickers. Mm -hmm. Um. The financialization, what you're calling financialization, does have a component that is productive. That is not almost any of the percentage of the money that is made this way, right? So there is something to be said for capital looking for useful things and uh, through mechanisms of setting prices and wages, redirecting uh, basically energy through the economy to places that it is potentially good for us. But the fraction of the wealth that is being produced through the financialization that you're talking about is tiny. A lot of what's happening there is the simple gaming of these systems um, and maybe even more to the point, you describe a system in which this these this wealth is being produced without the contribution of anything positive, but a lot of it is actually being produced as the result of the destruction of things that are positive. The pie is being mm. shrunk by people who are increasing the size of their slice, but through this gaming mechanism, and you know that is uh, the the definition of rent seeking is all of the stuff that goes from no productivity to anti-productive behavior that results in uh, profit. And these things 
you know, a rational society would invest mightily in reducing the amount of rent seeking as much as can be accomplished without creating a catastrophe. You will never freeze it out entirely, but in general, those who seek to make a profit uh, indifferent to the wealth that they destroy in the process should find themselves impoverished by their behavior so that they are driven into attempting to produce wealth uh, in a real sense because it's the only reasonable thing to do, right? It just for the same reason that you want to drive the cost of committing crime up so that people are not driven to explore it as a mechanism for getting wealthy. This is the same thing. You do not want people to get wealthy by destroying uh, our collective well-being, which mm -hmm. is unfortunately not not where we live. Um, you I, know, I, I come from a, a long line of bankers. Um, my 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 grandfather, my uncle, their fathers, their on and on and on. Um, it's like four generations deep, and and so my grandfather, he I remember him clearly. He told me the story about how his own father would work desperately. He didn't want him to go into banking because this was not around 1933, 1934. He's like, this is a bad business. It's really low margin. It's very high risk. It had just come out of the Great Depression. They were, I think, um, the total, sum total of the profits of banking as an industry was about 4%, which is about right. I I, I could, you know, but that was under, a, again, a sound money system, right, um, back in the day. Today, it's closer to 45, 50% of all the all the net profits, right? You know, GM is not really a car company. It's a financing vehicle with a car company now bolted to the side, right? So so this financialization is really, it's just, it, ah, it, it's really run far. And I just I just need people, the, the thing I want to warn people about is such money systems always dash themselves upon the rocks. They always break. I don't know if that's tonight at 9.30 it starts or it's in 20 years, I don't know, but but it will happen for the same reason, like this, you want to talk about ancient historical patterns repeating. <laughs> this is one of the oldest stories in the book is when you when you mistreat your system of money uh, and go into a credit cycle. And as Ludwig von Mises said, uh, you either voluntarily abandon the credit cycle or you risk uh, catastrophe of the money system. Paraphrasing yeah, poorly, but. Which is presumably why usury is uh, described as such a horrifying force. Um biblically right yeah um yeah yeah so yeah, our, our money is our social agreement it's a contract and if the contract gets abrogated or violated in some way it shreds all the other social bonds all, all the other agreements right and in fact i'm not sure that jubilee ever actually happened but that there is a a protective mechanism uh whereby debts are neutralized so that one can only go so far um, uh, that that is obviously an important concept, whether or not it was ever implemented. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to cap one thing off, though, from an earlier Good, part please. of our discussion. Yeah. The, the thing that I find can't be said in the context of, frankly, any uh, war context, but is especially difficult at the moment for the Middle East, is that everybody wants you to declare yourself in terms of what flag you wave. And there's one part of this story 
that is just simply unambiguous, which is, you know, the the brutal attack on civilians, the uh, torture of people that was done with delight and pride, clearly. There's no moral amb ambiguity about that, right? That was absolutely despicable. The problem with looking at the stuff on the other side is that we actually are not in possession of the information of what is resulting in each of these bombs being dropped in Gaza. And the consequences of it are absolutely horrifying for people who clearly, many of them, had nothing to do with this. They're simply, many of them are too young to have had anything to do with it. So the level of horror of what's happening to people on the Gaza side is breathtaking, but the simplicity of it is not because we don't know what is motivating the decision is to do what. And so we can't say, it, it would be great if we could say that there's a perfectly clear aspect of that too, but it is made murky by the fact that we don't actually know who's hiding where and what the Israelis think they're doing each time they drop a bomb. But anyway, put that aside. My point is, I keep being asked to wave a flag so that people know whether to you know, pat me on the back or shoot at me. And I keep trying to explain, I am on the side of the people in both populations who wish to live in a post-lineage against lineage violence world. I don't know how many people there are on the Palestinian side. I don't even really think it's a fair question because it's one thing if you've seen how that works and you choose uh, against it, right? Maybe you prefer a world of violence, even though you've had a chance to taste what the alternative looks like, in, in which case to hell with you. Um, but how does one stand up? If you look at the map, and the point is the map describes two land masses, both of which have a population that is divided over the question of whether or not to put violence aside and proceed together in some uh, collaborative cosmopolitan way. I'm on the side of the people who are in favor of Western cosmopolitanism, irrespective of which side of that border they're on. And mm -hmm. I'm against the people who want to drag us back into lineage against lineage violence, who are frankly putting the entire uh, human population in jeopardy. And unfortunately, that doesn't have a flag. I can't, I can't say, yeah, I'll tell you exactly whose side I'm on because it doesn't have a flag. And the problem is, you know, again, we're back to the the game of uh, or the the bowling alley with the two two failure modes, right? One on each side. I'm not going into either of those. I'm with the people who are done with this and really do mean mm -hmm. never again. And never again is not about uh, never again to my people. Never again is hey, let's put this mode of being away forever. Let's mothball it yep. permanently. Um, actually, mothball is the wrong analogy, isn't it? Because mothballs are there to preserve it. Let's consign it to the dustbin of history yeah, and uh, move forward towards uh, spreading Western cosmopolitanism to the entire world. And that does not mean multiculturalism. They sound like the same thing, but they are not. Um, so anyway. Now I, 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 feel... I completely agree. I, I completely agree. And I, I got two takes on that. The first is that um, from my resource standpoint, I, I've read these odious articles. New York Times most recently ran one a few years back where they said, you know what the world needs? It needs a good war because 
wars turn out to be very stimulative. And for some reason, global GDP growth is is just trending downwards. Maybe it's we need a war because we had World War II and wasn't that awesome what happened next. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's making the age old mistake of saying, you know, I hurt my hamstring on the basketball court when I was 17. And I'm now 65 or something. So so let's I know I, that recovery process was quick and easy. We don't have the vitality and the vigor. My prediction, Brett, is the next war we fight marks a high point for the that like that's it. Like you, we break stuff. It doesn't get rebuilt in anybody's lifetime. It just stays broke. Right. Because we won't have the tools in the energy left to in the vitality to rebuild. So, so there's this old thinking, which is war was stimulative. And there are people who think this way and they're gross. And so they think that, right? The second response I have to this is that is that to, to help, this isn't just one monolith of, oh, people behave this way or people behave that way. I segregate and I have a different access. And, and so let me rotate the Rubik's cube now to a different color. I've done a lot of work over my life to try and understand myself, but also humans around trauma, psychological trauma. And in particular, I was really taken by a book that I've probably read 10 times called Healing Developmental Trauma by um, Heller. And it integrates Jungian and the best of somatic experiencing and what we know neurochemically now. And it, it, it pulls it all together and says, oh, when you get traumatized at, at certain stages of development, you kind of get that gets encased in lucite and you carry that as a signature for the rest of your life unless you resolve it. And one of the most damaging types is called Con, uh, conditional survival type because each of these are a survival it's a it, when you are traumatized as a child or an infant or a young human it's a matter of survival that's how it's interpreted biologically that like it's it's like the same parts of the brain light up as if you were being attacked by something right because um and here's my theory i'd love to know what you think about this and maybe i heard this from someone else but came to me on a beach one day which is that here's what i know about human babies we are like the most useless things on the planet right Right. We don't come out of everyone. We don't come out and start trotting in 20 minutes, munching on grass. You know, we, we can't escape from a, a gazette, you know, a cheetah and three hours into life. We're just useless. Right. The first two years, just totally useless. So what's the first thing a baby does under conscious or some sort of control? And that's smile because their job is to connect. Right. And then they did these studies called the flat affect studies where mothers would just have a flat face against their babies and they saw what happened and they had to terminate the experiment because it was too traumatizing. Within 30 seconds, these babies not getting a response from mom's face would go into panic. And what is that panic? That panic is the same panic as if you're trying to drown that baby in a tub, I submit, because it's their survival. Because evolutionarily, my theory is that if the baby didn't bond with mom and resources are tight, she might just leave that thing by the side of the trail and keep moving. So the whole job was not to be left on the side of the trail. That's your one job as a human baby. Don't get let, don't have mom just leave you. Right. So what do we do now? Fast forward, uh, loving parents, the beautiful nursery. You've got the, the sharper image mobile. You've got the fluffy cloud wallpaper, You've got the most perfect blankets, and then you can still read these books today that explain how you how you get your child to sleep through the night at six weeks. That, that was the goal. And there's cultural support for that. But what you're really doing is you're traumatizing your baby in a very medieval, archival, evolutionary way where that baby stops crying, but because they've internalized a message that I fucked up as an organism, I got left. 
And how the baby makes sense of that. Now I, I fast forward and I watch Hillary Clinton. I watch Donald Trump. And I think I see developmental trauma in an adult form. And that's how I interpret it now. Is that, is that, does that hold water, evolutionarily speaking? <laughs> well, you're totally wrong to call it a theory because it's a hypothesis. But it's so good that it will become a theory soon. Um, so that's the good news. Um, anyway, I'm the last person on earth who is trying to uh, defend the term hypothesis as a separate phenomenon from theory. That's fine. No, thank you. Thank you, though. Yeah, yeah. But um, anyway, to your point, um, there's a ton in what you've said, highly accurate. And I do not know how the psychological professionals went so absolutely mental on this question in i guess the 50s is where it started but mm -hmm. the idea that you know i mean it was actually described as that you know the danger of loving your kids too much required you to steal yourself so that you know they didn't get you know so dependent that they never fledged or something like this nonsense you are wired to respond to your baby's distress for a reason. You internally know how to do this. And the idea that any any sophisticated ivory tower fool is going to tell you to override those impulses because your baby requires it is insane. And of course, it produced a ton of trauma. Um, I would also say we are suffering from a combination of forces we have very bad uh advice masquerading as scientific insight about how to raise children and then we have some hyper novelty stuff where for example um a uh, a student of heather and mine raised our awareness of a hazard in the technology the pumping of breast milk and mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of this technology because in the modern world, it frees women to participate in all sorts of uh, activities in which they excel and that are rewarding by, you know, liberating them from the obligation to feed an infant uh, right at the point that it's hungry. So it's a good technology. But here's the thing that our student raised our awareness of, that we had settled on the idea that breast milk is food. Now, it obviously is food, but it's also a mechanism of communication between mother and mm -hmm. infant. And one of the things that the body does internally is maintains a clock of what time of day it is so it can regulate cycles. So the likelihood that that breast milk carries a time signature oh. that causes a baby, if you feed the baby breast milk from midday and you do so at the point the baby is supposed to be going to bed and the baby does not respond like a baby who's ready to go to bed and keeps you awake and you think ah what the hell why are babies so badly wired and it's like no probably what you should be doing is you should be labeling your breast milk from what time of day you pumped it and then feeding it at a corresponding time it doesn't really cost you any more to do it that way right and the point is if if there is no time signature in there then you haven't lost anything. But if there is a time signature in there, maybe then you find yourself in the normal mode that humans would have been in since, you know, basically infinitely far back, as long as we've been mammals, where you would be sleeping right next to your infant and your infant would not become traumatized by having been abandoned, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, so anyway, I think there's a ton in there. And there's also one place I want to extend what you're saying, which is the cancel mechanism that the woke are so fond of and the medically woke became fond of and the flag wavers in the various conflicts that we've been looking at uh, have become fond of. That cancel mechanism triggers a primordial fear of starvation because what it does is it threatens to label you as not worthy of being part of us. And for an ancestor, not being part of us, you don't have to be a baby to be left by the side of the road. If you're simply cast out of your group, starvation is what's coming because human beings can't survive independently, right? We are inherently collaborative beasts. And so anyway, I believe that cancellation is highly effective because people carry this fear of being abandoned and it's not strictly about being a helpless infant. It, it's something that human beings rightly fear right through adulthood. Last thing I want to say is your model corresponds to a model that I generated some years back thinking about the same issue, about trauma and uh, healing. And what I realized was that the language that we have surrounding trauma is correctly the same language that we use, whether it's physical or psychological trauma. There's a good reason for that. There's a very close analogy between these things. It's a justifiable uh, overlap in terminology, but that there was something that was missing from our, uh, our glossary on this topic, which was the difference between wounds and scars. And what occurred to me was that many people carry wounds from trauma, but we don't necessarily distinguish between the massive vulnerability that people have when those wounds are open versus the not quite as good as never having been traumatized, but, but freeing fact of scarring over. And so in effect, if you are traumatized, and maybe we are all traumatized at this point because the world is not a normal world, and so development never goes smoothly for a modern person, but to whatever extent you are wounded by something in the process of growing up, the key question is, how can I scar over so that I am maximally enabled to go through life without any more vulnerability than necessary? And what people do instead and what we see, especially in woke circles, is the effort being spent to keep wounds open, right? To prevent them from scarring over because they are they are your your meal ticket, right? They are the the right that you mm. carry to special privileges. And this is just so dangerous, right? Okay, we've all gotten wounds. Scar over as quickly as possible and get back in the game. Right, that that should be the objective, and we should make that very clear to people. To the extent that you have a wound that isn't closing, that's a problem. And to the extent that you are keeping a wound open because of some kind of learned helplessness, that is something to be addressed at the top level because that's no way to go through life. Right? You I cry for these people because because everything, every every piece of growth I've ever done in my life, whether it was muscles involved involves uncomfortable trips to the gym and working against resistance, whether it was figuring out some part of myself that was there, it was uncomfortable, right? It's, it's, I don't know any other way, right? And as a teacher, you know, I remember you telling me that your the whole point used to be you made students uncomfortable because that's how you grew minds, right? And that ultimately the schools came back and said, 
don't make them uncomfortable anymore. This is our new model. And it doesn't map to anything we know about how people actually develop. And I remember getting in arguments with people like, oh, nonviolent communication, Chris, it's really important because with nonviolent communication, you don't accidentally trigger the other person. I'm like, how do they find out where their hot points are? How do they grow? So the whole thing is saying, let's encase people in Lucite at some random age, we'll call it 13, and that's it. Like, who said this is a good model? <laughs> when did, it's the wrong model, flat out. People should be uncomfortable. Yeah, it's not even, points. it's not <laughs> even wrong. I'm not disagreeing with you at all. I know this is implied in what you're saying, but it's not even the wrong model. It's the inverse of the right model. Yes. Right? Yeah. The fact is, you know, okay, bullying is bad. Fair enough. But anything that is, you know, is somewhere in the same set of circuitry as bullying, you, you want to rule that out. How else are gonna are people gonna figure out what they're doing that they think they're getting away with, but is actually visible? How do people learn to mature into a role where they are actually doing the right stuff and not lying to themselves about what people can see. Well, you know, your friends making fun of you because you're doing something dumb and they can spot it a mile off. That's how you learn to stop doing the dumb thing. If we say, mm -hmm. oh, that's bullying, then the point is, oh, you're going to be doing that dumb thing forever. And you're not going to have any idea why your life is working the way it is because you're not going to know what other people see at all. So yes, yeah. discomfort, um, discomfort is a key to learning. In fact, that's what it is. Discomfort is the sense I'd rather not be here again. What can I notice about how I got here that would allow me to avoid it? Right? Mm -hmm. That's how you get better at things. Right? Oh, damn it. I was building this thing and it, 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 it broke on the lab bench. What did I do wrong? Where was my error so that the next one I build doesn't do that and, you know, waste hours of my time? discomfort is the way you get better. And for us to declare it, it you know, it, it's the same stupid anti-insight that we see mm -hmm. in medicine and psychology, where we view pain as dysfunction rather than a symptom that is supposed to be telling you something about a dysfunction you may mm -hmm. not have spotted, right? If you can neutralize pain, and in fact, there are people who are born without the ability to feel pain, they don't live a long life because they don't learn any of the important lessons about how you don't get damaged. Mm. It's not a gift. It's a curse. And, you know, it's amazing to me that medicine and psychology are taught as if nobody would ever heard of Darwin, right? <laughs> the idea, you know, this person is in pain. Let's see if we can neutralize it. Um, is it bad pain? Like they've got a phantom limb and the hand that's been amputated hurts? Yeah, let's let's get rid of that pain. That's not a good one. But are mm -hmm. they, you know, are they behaving like an asshole to the people who are around them? And so those people don't want to spend time with them and they're lonely? You don't want to treat that pain. You want to help them figure out how to stop behaving that way. Mm -hmm. It's an indicator of something. Well, it's the same thing in the garden, you know, oh my gosh, I have aphids on these plants. I, I'll go down and get some spray for that, right? No, no, the aphids are a really important thing showing up to tell me there's something wrong with my soil. They mm. only show up when there's certain deficits. So if you see them, you're like, oh, 
I have a problem I need to fix. It's not the aphids because healthy plants don't have aphids. It's just how it is. They only attack certain, you know, and so on. So I feel like we got to get to this lineage B thing, which is we're going to have to be curious. We're going to have to be open-minded. We're going to have to dare to be uncomfortable. We're going to have to press each other where we're weak in areas. You know, I may have, I, I'm, I'm sure somebody's going to call in angry and say, I can't believe you, you dared to tell me that the way I lovingly raised my children could have harmed them. You have it all wrong. I am a loving parent and you're a cad, right? It's coming, right? But there's an insight there, isn't there? You know, and, and I think that's what we have to, we have to be willing to go there for almost ev everything needs to be on the table where we are at this part of the human story, everything. And so that's why I value these conversations with you. Cause I, I just know that no matter how delicate we can go there and we can have that conversation. And if it gets uncomfortable, that's okay. It doesn't, that's um, just how it should be. I have, uh, I don't do it all the time, but sometimes I, if I'm meeting somebody and I have no idea um, what their orientation is, uh, I just, I introduce Heather and me as terrible people who have come to believe unforgivable things. <laughs> just so they've heard it from me first, right? <laughs> so it's like, look, it's not like I didn't warn you, right? You know, at the moment that you think, oh my God, this is a terrible person can't believe he thinks that stuff then the point is well i did tell you right but anyway um <laughs> yeah yeah i mean what else are you gonna do i i do have a uh a painful uh, there's nothing i could have done about it but um there is a important podcaster heterodox thinker who had me on his program and we had a great conversation. He he said that he had he had rated it as one of the best conversations he'd had. So we had a, a good rapport until Heather and my book came out and it became clear that we were beyond skeptical of the chemical imbalance model of mental disorders, right? That we did not believe that SSRIs, for example, were mm -hmm. in general a good thing. There might be the occasional perk person for whom it's relevant, but in general, giving these to large numbers of people was preposterous. And uh, at the point that he read that, something about his own life or relationship with his children or some other loved one meant uh, we could not be friends anymore. And it's like, oh man, that's, it's so tragic to run into uh somebody who is so dependent on some frankly pharma generated myth that's obviously profitable and obviously vulnerable to any one of a number of analyses that would tell you it doesn't make evolutionary sense it doesn't make toxicological sense um but it's much as you say that the, there's the awareness of what have i done is too much for some people. And um, I mean, it really speaks back to the point about the open wound, right? If this person had mm -hmm. scarred over, then the point is, well, geez, I'm, you know, I made some mistakes. That's unfortunate. And in fact, I feel, mm -hmm. I feel this way. Um, you started the conversation by talking about how, you know, you're the last person in the world to be an anti-vaxxer. I feel the same way, but I also know um, 
that there are places where I was too slow to realize what was going on. One of them has to do not with the vaccines themselves, but with the adjuvants and the sensitivities that they seem to create, you know, that, you know, my kids have some sensitivities that I now think are more than likely the result of adjuvants having triggered uh, responses to perfectly benign substances. Um, I also know, you know, uh, my kids both had orthodontia, and I now know from learning from Mike Mew that in fact the right the, the you know what I hadn't noticed, but in retrospect is so utterly obvious, is that there's no conceivable way that the spread of what's called malocclusion, the failure of the teeth to meet correctly, could possibly be the result of anything other than a developmental exposure. Some part of me knew that, but um, it I didn't occur to me early enough in my kid's life that actually the solution was going to involve having them chew on tough things. You know, the world is so hell-bent on making sure that nothing is difficult for a child to chew, that the jaw forms incorrectly, and that's why the teeth don't come into the right place, and that this has implications for, uh, for you know, asthma and breathing. It has implications for sleep apnea. It has implications for ADHD, right? The number of things that are downstream of the fact that your jaw didn't get the right feedback when you were tiny and then grew incorrectly. And then that anybody thinks that moving the teeth so that they meet in the right place is like a full solution. No, that's nonsense, right? Yes, you can get the teeth to meet more correctly in your malformed jaws, but the correct thing to do was to say, hey, why this this child's jaw isn't misformed yet. What do I need to do so that it works out correctly? So anyway, yeah, the, the, the number of yeah. places where, but the basic point is, look, I'm not going to pretend that my own failure to see that didn't hurt my kids. It did. Mm-hmm. It doesn't help me, doesn't help them to pretend otherwise. And in fact, by recognizing it, I'm going to save my grandkids from it. There we go. I have, I have the same model in my head. Like, <clears throat> uh, in fact, I, I think I did all my best parenting before I had kids. Um, you know, <laughs> see, you know, yeah. seeing people in the store with a kid out of control, like, oh, never, you know. But then, yeah, your parent. <laughs> but as a grandparent, you've got the wisdom and the understanding. But but everything that I've learned from COVID, I actually do really. I'm very thankful for COVID coming along, because I've now learned that the right answer, invariably, if you have to default, is what did nature have us do? Right. Period. Right. So I just, I did this incredible podcast with a guy who has this magic box that you stand on that vibrates called a juvent and it, and it shock loads your, your, your bones. Cause they have all the data. They say, look, there's, there's, we know that if you put somebody in a bed, their muscles waste away. You understand that. Well, it turns out that your bones similarly are looking for a couple of experiences from life. First, they're looking for the gravitational pull. And we know that because we put people out in the space station and they lose bone mass and they get all floppy, right? We're like, oh, I guess they that gravity is important. But he said, there's another piece of that, which is impact. That if people would walk five miles a day without shoes on, you don't need my magic machine. But we sit here with, and we when we do walk, we have these magic shoes that cushion that. Well, that force, it turns out the osteoclasts in your bones are looking for a shock load because they actually have channels that are gated mechanically. So if we, by removing impact, guess what's happened? We have less stem cell growth. We have less, there's like a million things that fall off of that. Bottom line is go out in the sun, get some nice vitamin D, 
drink water without a whole lot of crazy stuff in it, get some nice exercise, you know, and, and uh, so it's, I, I literally, this is what my grandma used to tell me. So it, it's just, uh, I'm very thankful for that, but, but I do think we got to get back to basics here and, and that health comes from um, doing what we used to do. And, and, and I, th I really do think that we're traumatizing ourselves in really big, profound ways. And then we grow up and we call them neocons and we wonder why they're so broken. And I guarantee you, I can dig back in their background and understand it. I don't condone it. I'm like Chris Rock, right? I understand it. I don't condone it, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but I do think it's under, I understand it better. Um, and until we resolve that traumatization, re-traumatization, this is the whole thing that's going on in the Middle East. It's a very old story. We're going to, we're going to run, spin this around a few more times and that's great, but that feels like a, a forever loop to me. It's just the do, do then loop, right? Can we, how do we break that? We have to understand the ways in which we've, we've traumatized it um, in ourselves. Yeah. And there's also, so Heather and I were just in Prague. It was my first time. Heather had been there once before. Um, Prague was marvelous in many ways. Uh, it was delightful to interact with uh, the Czech people who turn out to be just a little bit subversive. Nice. Something about their their way, their approach. They're, they are noble subversives, and it was very lovely to interact with them. But it was also lovely to see, you know, Prague is, uh, I don't want to say almost all because I didn't see almost all of Prague. I saw a small fraction of it. But everywhere we went was cobbled. Mm. And not only is the co are the cobbles preserved from a prior era, but when they make a new sidewalk, they do so with a technique that's actually it's got designs on it, visual designs, and it has a little structure to it, which changes the experience of walking. And Heather and I were talking about the fact that there's just no comparison. It's so much more pleasant. It feels it just indescribably different mm -hmm. from walking on this very smooth, extremely hard, regular concrete. And the question is, how much do you get from the fact that each footfall is not exactly like the last one? Right. How much does this actually just keep alive the features of, you know, your proprioception that are forced to navigate over rocks and roots and all of that in the ancestral circumstance that are just presumably numbed by the perfectly regular, extremely hard, highly economically efficient surface that we have substituted? Um, you know, and how many of these things are we missing? It's a little like the breast milk and just remembering what time of day you pumped it. In, mm -hmm. in fact, when I asked them about this, I, I asked some checks. I said, it must be very expensive to do things this way. And the answer I got back was, no, actually, it's not because the cobbles allow you to access what's under there. You know, you can pull up any set of cobbles, fix it yep. and put them back. And so the point is, maybe maybe we're doing this hard concrete stuff because it's economically efficient on the front end. But then when you have to go do something and you need a freaking jackhammer and, you know, how much are we paying for the medical injuries to the dudes who are using the jackhammer and how much damage to people's hearing are we doing because jackhammers are everywhere. And, you know, if we if we had a kind of all inclusive measurement of the costs of doing things this way, maybe we would do it like the check and our world would be just more beautiful and interesting and fun to walk on. 
That's I love that story. I had the the same experience. I took Evie. We went to Iceland. She'd never been. Uh, we loved it. But there was a guy, a crew of guys working on a sidewalk. Same thing. Cobbles they're pulling up. They were putting in heated sidewalks because they've got all this spare geothermal. I was very jealous, right? Um, <laughs> nice. They have so much. They're like, let's just heat some sidewalks with it, you know? But they had the same story. I was like, hey, that looks expensive. And he's like, no, because if I had to jackhammer this out, I'd have to pay for a truck and it would have to take it somewhere and dump it, right? That's your your model. We don't do it that way here. We're like, we just have a very different ethos. But similarly, in sort of tying it back to our concept of enough, um, I uh, a follower of mine lived down in the toniest district, the toniest you could in Reykjavik, right? His next door neighbor was one of these, you know, famous, world famous singers, right? The largest apartment, because nobody actually has a house, everybody has an apartment. It's like 250 square meters, maybe 300 tops, right? You know, small, small, smallish, modest, like, but in their culture, it would have been absolutely shaming. It would have been against their cultural standards, like to show off more than that would have been very frowned upon. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. And, you know, um, I don't know if you know this, but Heather and I have recently moved to an island for various reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, it fits with our um, biological orientation to the world. There's a lot, lot to see here. Um, but it's interesting how much islands change the culture of people who live on them. Even this island, which is um, chaotic because it's, you know, people who move from other parts of the U.S. primarily. There's no island culture. Uh, I wouldn't say there's none, but, the, you know, there are the old timers. Some people have been here for many generations and they have a kind of a, a culture and an ethos. But the rest of it, people who move here discover certain things like um, being intolerant is stupid. Right. <laughs> You're living on an island with a small number of people like, yeah, you can you can write people off because they have some <laughs> belief that you don't think is right. But, you know, the the it gets pretty, pretty small, pretty fast if you do that elections matter here you know like there was a election to elect a new sheriff in place of the old sheriff and of course you know you're going to be stuck on an island with whoever loses that election <laughs> whoever wins that election is going to be the person pulling you over so you mm -hmm. know it the the island changes things but anyway iceland uh, and Japan and every other island nation has a different view of things, often a, f a more far-sighted view, because um, you know people who have been trapped on that island and gone down some not very good road have uh, discovered the error of their ways. And anyway, we would. Uh, I, I hope that maybe it exists, but somebody should do an analysis of the kinds mm. of uh modifications to culture that happen on islands because frankly we do live on one all of us right this all is not a very right. big planet and if we took an approach that put us in that mindset we might be able to preserve it longer well interestingly you know one of the many differences and so iceland is fairly socialistic uh but i, I didn't find it in a disagreeable way a lot of people are like oh socialism they were very thoughtful about stuff. Um, for instance, they had a bunch of refugees that they brought in with the whole sort of European EU were bringing refugees in. But the government would then pay for a flat for this for this refugee family to live in. And they scattered them and they didn't have them all clustered in a place where they couldn't integrate or they had the luxury of not needing to integrate because they could sort of like, you know, talk and live amongst each other. They spread them very, very carefully. Um, so it's, it's like, oh, it's, it's pretty thoughtful, you know, and. 
And uh, for a while, they had a, a truancy problem with their high school students. And so you could either put more money into that, but they looked at it, they thought about it, and they said, what if we gave these kids vouchers that they could use for after-school programs, you know, soccer, hockey, whatever. So they did that instead, and it worked so well, they just dismantled the whole truancy department. Like, like, like it's it felt much more manageable, and it's only 300-ish thousand people, so it's maybe at a scale that you can still have solutions that work. But it was interesting to watch people who were thoughtful and they would try stuff. And if it worked, they kept it. And if it could be improved, they would. There was a sense of like togetherness in, in the story that I don't have watching millions of people, most of them military age guys, stream across my border thinking maybe this is not a good idea, right? You can't even have that conversation, you know, you racist, you. Like, no, that's, I'm pretty sure that's a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I hear you exactly. And I guess one of the things that's true of all of the uh, idiocies we have been exposed to over the last, I mean, they've been particularly egregious over the last four years, but, you know, going back six years, eight years, the last decade, idiocy after idiocy, part of the problem is that people appear to be living in a universe that they take to be virtual. They are living as if in a video game. They do not understand that the insane things that they are portraying are going to come back to haunt them in physical reality. Mm. You want to say two plus two doesn't necessarily equal four. You are talking about the destruction of bridges that you are going to drive on, right? Does any rational person attack the ancient patterns by which we build bridges that don't fall down while you're on them? No, you leave that stuff intact. But mm -hmm. if you think yeah. this is just a video game, and that you can, hey, the cool people are saying that two plus two might not equal four. And I'm, of course, a cool person. So that's what I'm going to do. You're what my grandfather used to call eating the seed corn. Right? You do not have a plan for the future. And you don't even understand how dumb it is not to have a plan for the future because you're on some kind of social autopilot, not realizing that nature bats last. So on islands where your decisions actually come back to haunt you sooner, mm -hmm. you might realize, hey, it's not worth socially signaling over this thing if it's going to cause us not to have enough food come next winter. So, and I guess the last thing I would say is, this is going to get me in trouble with uh, the conservatives who are on the march at the moment, having been vindicated, correctly vindicated on many, many points. But... It's not a question of socialist versus capitalist. These are ingredients. And the question is, do you need more of one of them or more of the other at the moment? You know, is capitalism genius? Uh, not on its own. You know, it results in people exploring every kind of characterological defect and using it to transfer your wealth to them as they pollute your culture with garbage, right? So there's the point at which as great as markets are, and they are great, you've got too much market driving too much of your, your culture. And then there's a point, obviously, at which the, uh, the Marxist impulse uh, turns into madness because it can't be sustained. So, you know, these are ingredients and it's like, you know, is salt a good ingredient? I mean, I like salt, but it doesn't mean I want to eat salt, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, mm -hmm. this might need some more salt, but it, 
Mm. It's not a solution in and of itself. Um, with that, Brett, obviously we could keep talking and we will keep talking. Thank you so much for being on the show. As always, uh, my good friend, it's it's just been a real pleasure and treat talking with you today. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the next one. It's, it's always enlightening.